at a time when investors are confronted with market volatility and a variety of challenges fueled by the uncertainty of inflation, unsettled geopolitical tensions, and economic pressures, Justin Klein and Steve Peasley stand ready to take your finance and investment questions and share their unbiased answers. This is InvestTalk, independent thinking, shared success. InvestTalk is made possible by KPP Financial, a registered investment advisor firm serving clients throughout the United States. The clarity for your path forward starts now. Here is KPP Chief Executive Officer, Financial Advisor, Justin Klein. Good afternoon, fellow investors, and welcome back to Invest Talk. This is our Wednesday, June 28th, 2023 edition. I'm Justin Klein, and I'm excited for this hour with you, as always, to help, you gi- help give you some data and perspective of over 20 plus years of investment experience. And right at the top of this show, I want to thank everybody who joined our Invest Talk Wealth webinar, Rates in Real Estate, this afternoon. I think everyone gained a good deal of insights about both the commercial and residential markets and how that can inform your portfolio and your not not just your investment portfolio, right? Your 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 IRAs, four hundred one ks, brokerage accounts, etc. But also, if you own real estate in any capacity, whether that is your primary residence, a rental, uh, maybe you have some commercial properties, whatever it is. This was a, a great hour, and we talked about REITs as well uh, as on top of Deferred Sales Trust, which uh, is a great tool for anybody who has highly appreciated assets to defer taxes. Um, so I think that was a great overview of the recent trends and how to position the portfolio. So I think everybody, I know we didn't get to kind of went over time a few minutes, so I didn't get to a lot of, uh, a lot of questions, but uh, hopefully maybe you can call in with some questions uh, follow up here on the show. So that reminds me to remind you that you set the table here on today's podcast. And here on Invest Talk, we do not pre-screen live calls. Instead, you take we take what you throw at us live and in real time. And we're committed to answering your questions using sound reasoning and logic that's down to earth, not based on just a simple narrative, but real data, real information that's informing smart investment decisions. And that's what this is all about. No hidden agenda, just helping you help encourage you to ignore emotions and focus on the real world data that is being used by professionals and smart investors to inform their investment decisions, including ourselves. So we don't chase headlines here. We chase facts on the ground. So we're going to teach you best practices and try to eliminate counterproductive habits that a lot of people have because either they're inexperienced or most of the time has to do with emotions and trying to weed out those emotions. So I'm ready to take your questions and our phone line is always open. It's 888-99-CHART. Now my focus point today looks into the story behind this question. Will China be the next Japan? And there are a lot of parallels to what happened in Japan in the 80s and into the 90s. And how will that play out? Obviously, you have two countries in the Asian region, one a series of islands, one 
a very large country, but with only a small percentage of that really uh, populated or inhabitable. And you have two different governments. You have a democracy and a dictatorship. And so there are parallels, but there are differences. And we're going to break that, that down. Also, we're going to touch on the commercial real estate market a little deeper. I know we talked about it on the webinar today, but I want to go over that a little bit more, as well as the shift towards more store-bought brands, private label brands, and what the data is showing on that front as well. So this is, these are what's on my mind, and we can also touch on your voice bank questions. One is in regards to investing in ETFs versus stocks and LAM Research Corp. So I've got this all planned for this hour of Invest Talk, and of course, your live calls as well at 888 chart. Now let's take a quick look at the market today. It was certainly a mixed day. You had the broad market essentially flat. The U.S. market was up 0.02%. Let's call it a flat day on the large cap. Mid caps, same thing, but more on the downside, 0.07% down. And small caps, they actually did pretty well, up a third of a percent. So that's where you saw the strength today were in those small caps, which is which are starting to make a comeback compared to what you saw earlier in the year where small caps actually were underperforming for most of the year. That's starting to shift. Now, is that because of strength in the economy? What is driving that? Uh, I think that is mainly the strength in the economy that a lot of people were pricing in weaker economy and that's starting to not really come to fruition, at least as quickly as most people were prognosticating, including, including the bond market. So very choppy day today and uh, really a consolidation day, just chopping sideways. All right, let's head over to our first, our first voice bank question at 888-99-CHART. Hi, this is James from California. I have a question on NRG. It's an energy company trading at around $35, $36. Do you think it would be a good investment in the long haul, five to 10 years for uh, dividends and growth? Looks like they, they distribute 80% of their earnings as dividends and retain 20% for growth, etc. Thank you. All right, looking at NRG Energy. And this is a utility company out of Texas. They have about 5.5 million customers. It's one of the largest retail energy providers in the United States. It bought Vivid Smart Homes, adding about 2 million customers this year. And it's one of the largest independent power producers, 13 gigawatts of coal, gas, and oil power generation capacity, primarily in Texas. It did go bankrupt back in 2003, but is has, has operated successfully uh, really ever since. And earnings really spiked up during COVID, went from $2 a share in 2020, all the way to $8.93 in 2021. But that's kind of coming back to 517 last year, expected to make $6.23 this year on a $36 stock. So it is a it, it is trading based on earnings at a cheap multiple, but it does have a lot of debt on its balance sheet. And I think that's the biggest issue here is that it its ability to raise that dividend over time is probably not that great. And it has, once again, a lot of long-term debt, which is actually on the rise. And if you look at the free cash flow, it continues to be negative. And I know they're investing in a lot of green energy projects and their, their business just tends to be a lot more volatile. 
And that's what worries me. You know, you're investing in a utility. Utilities typically are not great absolute return, long-term investments. Now they have a lot lower volatility in the broader market. Uh, but overall, the trend is poor for energy, especially if you look at it compared to like the XLU. This has just been in a downtrend ever since 2019. So it's underperforming the sector for the past four years after outperforming before that. But yeah, overall, I just don't love the trend here and I don't love the profitability. It's pretty weak. Turn equity right now is negative 42%. So I think there's a lot better utilities out there. And if you're looking for growth, you don't want to be in the utility space. Utilities for steady, consistent growth income in modest growth of that income. And I just don't see either of those here. So uh, I'm passing on NRG. Okay. Now we're heading into a break. Steve and I are happy to play your recorded voice bank questions, but we love taking your live calls as well. Our number never changes and it never closes. It's Invest Talk at 888 chart When listener questions are played on the Invest Talk podcast, how do you guys determine a value stock? The caller voices are amplified many thousands of times. Just wanted to get your opinion on JP Morgan and BAC. How do you see this uh, looking forward? I'm 25 years old and have a question about retirement funds. And the unbiased answers from Justin Klein. That's why it's trading so cheap, because there's a lot of regulatory risk. And Steve Peasley. I, I kind of like it here. If I was going to buy Tyson Food, this is where I'd buy it. Benefit the entire Invest Talk community. Thank you for what you guys do. That's why 24-7, rain or shine, no matter how simple or how complex, your questions make a difference. Symbol BKE, what's your outlook? And Invest Talk is made better by the power of you. So don't forget to call 888 99Chart. Everybody wants a secure financial future, but getting there takes strategy, discipline, and the right information. That means you'll have finance and investment questions. Justin Klein and Steve Peasley are ready to provide their unbiased answers. So don't forget to call InvestTalk, 888-99-CHART. Now, my focus point today looks in the story behind this question. Will China be the next Japan? And uh, there are certainly a lot of parallels to discuss here because I, I, I wasn't I was I was a, a young lad, but I remember in my early days, China, Japan was talked about uh, as the industrial powerhouse that was taking over the world. Right. Toyota and Honda came in in the late 70s, early 80s, and started to produce better vehicles, better end products with uh, more reliability, etc., and really took a ton of market share. And there were a lot of young Japanese workers that were uh, pumping out these products. Unfortunately, demographics kind of caught up with Japan, and they had the collapse in their economy in the early 90s, and they've kind of wallowed in non-existence, I don't want to say non-existence, 
they've wallowed in low to negative growth for a long period of time, right? They're, they were the first ones to do extensive QE, and they've pretty much continued to this day. Now, right now, China's household debt surged to 62% of GDP last year from 28% just a decade ago. Japan was at 60% in 1989, so a little bit lower than where China is today. And that was up from 26% in 1971. China's corporate debt is at around 160% of GDP. The peak in Japan was 145% in the mid-90s. And then you turn to that demographic issue. China's demographics are changing even faster than Japan's did because of the one-child policy. And they had a turning point really starting around 2010. And they're now into negative territory, right? Growth in the population started to decline in 2010. And now it's into negative territory. And the projections now by the United Nations is for China's population to drop to 1.3 billion by 2050 and 767 million by the end of this century. And that 1.3 billion, it sounds like a lot, but that's about three and a half times the size of our projected population here in the US of 375 million at that time. Currently, Chinese population is about 4.3 times larger. So there's some convergence there. And then there's the real estate bubble. And there's a bit of difference in the fact that Beijing has a lot more control over what is happening in local economies, a bit different than Tokyo did back in the 1990s. And, and that's really where I think the, the economic challenges or economic uh, policies differ. You know, Japan is a democracy at the end of the day, and they have different factions and different chairmen's come and go. Same thing in, in China. Now, currently in China, the main problem with their economy is that there's weak household interest in buying new homes. Why? Because they own a lot of them. The People's Bank of China survey in 2019 showed that households account for nearly 60% of urban household assets. Sorry, housing accounted for 60% of urban household assets. So this is where the majority of China's population has their assets in, is, is in real estate of some kind. And so China's housing market activity has fallen to its weakest on record. So housing is no longer going to be a major lifting force. And that's because of what the policymakers want. They're promoting high tech, upgraded manufacturing, greener economy, and new infrastructure over new homes. So the question is, can they pivot? Will they successfully pivot? Well, Japan didn't really do that, right? They pivoted, but because of the headwinds of demographics and the debt over, over their head, they were never able to find an economic engine that pulled them out of the malaise. And they've been in the malaise for 30 years economically. And it's very likely that China is entering something similar. Now, we have completed a very successful wealth webinar, Rates in Real Estate, but that's over. I'm here now, taking your calls on the Best Talk 888 chart.
Justin Klein is here and ready to take your calls live. Invest Talk, 888-99-CHART. Hey, Justin and Steve. This is Kyle from Michigan. I love the podcast. I've been a listener for about four or five years. I had a question about Lamb Research, LRCX. I wanted to get your thoughts on it and if it was attractive to you or if it had to go a little bit lower for it to be attractive to you. And I would like to get a price point that you like. Thank you. Hope to hear the question answered on the podcast. Bye. All right. This is Lamb Research, and this has been a nice rally with the broad market since the lows in October, around $300 per share, right? Yeah, right at about $300 per share. We're at bottom. Now it's at $642 per share. So up over 100% in less than a year. Obviously, a nice snapback rally after uh, pretty depressed prices. And now it hasn't hit a all time high. All time high was in the beginning of last year, right around $732 per share. So a lot of this is a, a retrace from the drop. And earnings have remained flat to, to up. 2021, they earned $27 per share, $33.11 last year. So expected to be $33.26 this year. So really flat earnings expectations. Although last quarter, revenues were down 5%, earnings were down 6%. Next year, earnings was to drop 23%. So I think that's what you, you saw that, that big drop last year was weighing on the tech sector. And obviously, this is uh, LAM Research. So they are in the semiconductor equipment space. And they did very well during the pandemic because of trying to build out capacity. Uh, the worry, though, with LAM Research search and a lot of the, the chip names is, will the chip cycle go the other way? And it has to a degree. But clearly, the market is snapping back. Um, there's obviously a lot of hope with AI and, and, and a lot of sympathy trades here, where there's the NVIDIAs of the world, but then a lot of the other tech names, a lot of the other uh, semiconductor names or adjacent like Lamb Research are getting rallies as well. Now, the good thing is this continues to kind of outperform. If I look at this compared to the semiconductors like an SMH, this has started to outperform since those October lows. And I like that. Now, it underperformed during the pullback, so it's just saying it's more volatile, which makes sense, right? Because these are big ticket items that Lamb Research is providing to these chip producers. And long term, it's a good business. That's what I like to see is, is this a good business? If we took look at return on assets, right now it's at 27%. It's a little higher than the long-term average, about 23, but it's still a very profitable business. So what I would say is it's a little overbought. It's a little expensive right now, not drastically so, but probably modestly overvalued. Uh, and the technicals are fine. So near term, it probably goes higher unless there's a major rollover in tech, which certainly is possible. I would like to buy this though, back around $500 per share. Right now it's a 642. That would be where major support would be. And that's where I'd be interested in lamb research. Now, every now and then, I think uh, that I, I like to play two in a row. So let's do that right now. And here's a caller question that came in earlier from Minnesota on 888 chart Hi, Steve and Justin. This is Matt from Minnesota. Long-time listener to the show. Thank you guys for everything you teach us. We appreciate it out here. I have a quick question. I'm considering adding a consumer, I guess, staple or... I guess it wouldn't be a staple, but just a consumer stock to my portfolio in the food sector. 
I've been looking at Shake Shack. I believe it's S-H-A-K. And I've been looking at another one that owns a variety of different uh, restaurants, M-T-Y. I was wondering if you guys had any thoughts on these companies at all. Both have been growing great. Um, Seem to be a cash cow, M-T-Y does. And I'm not sure if that one pays a dividend or not. I don't know if you guys know that fact or not either. Wondering what your thoughts are on either of them, if either of them would be a good fit to a diversified portfolio. Thank you. Look forward to hearing your answers on the show. Have a good day. All right, looking at Shake Shack and MTY Food Group. This is actually out of Canada. Shake Shack is uh, domestic here in the U.S. And Shake Shack is one of those growth names, but it's never really turned their business into uh, major profit. Free cash flow trailing 12 months is negative 60 million. Obviously, they continue to open new stores, and, and that's probably their uh, excuse for uh, their, their uh, lack of profitability. But just look at their operating cash flow. It's powering higher, but uh, $88 million on a $3 billion market cap. It's too expensive for my blood. And to fuel this, these, this growth, they've been issuing more and more shares over the past five years or so. I don't like that either. So I'm not a fan of Shake Shack as a business. Uh, I believe I've had, yeah, I've had Shake Shack before. Fine burger, but I think it's too expensive and not a name that I would be investing in. Now, MTY is once again out of, it looks like out of Canada, and they have, they're, they're a, f- a franchiser of quick service casual dining foods a lot of different brands, Big Smoke Burger, Cafe Depot, Country Style, Croissant Plus, Cultures, uh, et cetera. They have a suite of about a dozen plus different names. And if you look at their business, it's pretty solid. Return on equity right now at about 11%. Longer term, it averages kind of in the, the mid-teens, which is okay. Uh, but I, what I don't like is the trend of profitability. Back in 2005, return on equity was 33%. It's been trending down ever since. So I don't love that. It means that they're not really allocating their capital well. They do pay a little bit of dividend, which is which is fine, and I think they have room to grow it. Um, this is a solid business. If I'm picking one or the other, I'm absolutely picking MTY Group, but neither get me excited. Okay. Now, on the next invest talk, we will look into this story: the high five banking method strategy. How many banks? How many bank accounts should you have? That story tomorrow. But for now, I'm Justin Klein, ready to take your questions live at 888-99-CHART. Let's say you've been thinking about learning a new language. Okay, why? I mean, how would it come in handy? And where would you want to use it? Could it be that you have an upcoming international trip? Or maybe you want to connect with family members or friends from a different culture? I think you should know about Rosetta Stone. With millions of users, it's been the world's most trusted language learning program for 30 years. Rosetta Stone is available on your desktop or as an app with audio companion and the ability to download lessons offline. Rosetta Stone truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. It has a built-in patented speech recognition engine called True Accent. So as you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you pronounce words. With Rosetta Stone, you pick up a language naturally. First with words, then phrases, then sentences. It's an intuitive process, 
designed for long-term retention. You really learn to speak, listen, and think in your new language. Rosetta Stone is an amazing value, so your special skill set is within easy reach. You know you want to do this, so don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, InvestTalk listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off now at rosettastone.com today. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It is official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. One of the most rewarding things I do each weekday is host the Invest Talk podcast. I truly enjoy helping investors, and I know that every question counts and every answer I provide will be unbiased. You, the caller, get to chart the course for each Invest Talk podcast. Call with your questions anytime, day or night, 888 99Chart. Now, there is a 20 story office tower in New York City, uh, 529 Fifth Avenue, and it's near Grand Central Station. And it stands out for no particular reason, except for the fact that it recently sold three months ago for about $105 million. And on a price per square foot basis, that was even less than the plot of land was selling for across the street in 2015. And in many parts of New York City, they're seeing property prices lower than they've seen in 20 years. And the older buildings have really felt the, the downturn. And if you look at foreclosures within the commercial real estate market, about 28% of them, of the foreclosures, are now in the office side of the sector. Now, that's not, not the only place that's seeing problems. The multifamily, the apartment market, is also feeling problems as well, mainly in areas where they're having outward migration. So think of San Francisco. You're seeing defaults on apartment buildings there, as well as in Houston. You're seeing hotels and shopping malls go into foreclosure as well. 
And many banks are starting to offload some of these performing properties, meaning they're still paying the debt, right? The, the, the property owner is still paying on it, but they're selling off the loan because they're worried about that turning into a default. Now that's the negative. Now the positive is that uh, a recent sale uh, by uh, Jones Lang LaSalle was higher than had been expected. So, you know, it's an illiquid market. There are not a lot of sales going on. So it's hard to get a clear value on many of these properties. Now, Jones Lang LaSalle estimates that the office buildings in New York have lost $76 billion in value from their most recent sale price. And 73 were now worth less than their loan balance. Now, that's an estimate because, once again, it's hard to know exactly what these would trade hands for. Blackstone recently sold off 1330 Avenue of the Americas for $320 million, a third less than the price that it got in 2006. Now, Blackstone recently sold its stake in One Liberty Plaza to Brookfield at about $1 billion. That's down from the $1.5 billion in 2017 that it was worth. So it's some interesting trends going on, and we covered this uh, a bit within the, uh, within the webinar today. And the, most, the, the basic takeaways in the commercial real estate market is that office is likely to continue to struggle. And a lot is regionalized. And it's not just all office, it's office in big cities because that's where outward migration is happening. But there's also interesting dynamics within industrial. There's a lot of inventory coming on market because of the lack of supply back in over the last couple of years. Think of the lack of space there were in warehouses because everyone and their mother were buying some type of goods that online that was shipped to a warehouse and shipped out. In multifamily, vacancy rates have turned back to neutral, right? Long-term averages, but headed higher, meaning that rents are likely to continue to come down on the back of, once again, multifamily through supply this year at a record. And then retail, what's interesting here is there's a bit of dichotomy between your malls, which continue to underperform, mainly B and C level malls, and your big box retailers, where Walmarts and Targets and Home Depots are leasing space, and your strip malls, your community strip malls with your grocery store and your restaurants and uh, your drug stores, those continue to do very well. So you have to really dissect the various sectors that you're talking about. You can't paint the entire commercial real estate market with one broad brush, just like you can't with, real, with, with REITs. And we talk about REITs on the webinar because REITs, there are subsectors there as well. So these trends are going to inform you on how and what exposure you should have within the real estate sector, both on the micro level and the macro level. Now let's pivot back to the Best Talk Voice Bank for the number, from the number that never closes, it's 888-99-CHART. And this question came in from Florida. I am putting money into my Roth on a weekly basis to maximize my Roth because I can't do it all in one, one drop uh, at the beginning of the year. What's the best way to invest into 
stocks or ETFs when you can't buy a large block of a stock at a given time. So you're slowly putting into the market on a weekly basis. Do you just pick stocks that you think are going to do well and dollar cost average over the entire year and then adjust the strategy as needed? Or is it best to just kind of blindly invest into these ETFs or index funds? Thanks. I look forward to hearing the answer. Well, either way, you're doing dollar cost averaging, but you are going to pick a strategy that works for you. There's no right answer to what, what strategy is best for everybody because of risk tolerance levels, expertise, discipline, etc. Clearly, within, the only way to do better than the market is to not invest in the market, invest in individual positions. But there's risk there. And you have to know what you're doing in order to put the odds in your favor. And that's what we try to do on the show, obviously. If you don't have the time and the expertise and the discipline, then you probably just want to index. Especially if you're a small investor, right? Indexing, the cost of indexing is, is very small because you're talking about a small dollar amount. When you get to six figures plus, then you know, the cost of indexing, cost of just having funds in general becomes a lot higher. And then suddenly individual stocks and, and bonds might make sense, but you have to still have the, the discipline or then the expertise and the time and the data. So it's really about first figuring out that strategy and then dollar cost averaging towards that strategy. It sounds like you're a new investor. So maybe just indexing makes sense for now, but over time, maybe that could change. Let's go to Gene, North Carolina. Wants to talk about the Japanese economy. Yes, Justin. I wanted to follow up on uh, some discussion you had earlier on about uh, Japan. And also, I want to introduce um, the topic of Korea. So in Japan, I heard part of their problem, you know, their stock market, I think, peaked in the early 80s. It was kind of a, uh, a huge bubble late 80s, and late it 80s. came down. Sorry? Late 80s, yeah. Late 80s, sorry, yeah. And I heard part of the problem that they still have to overcome is they never they never separated the good assets from the bad assets in the banks that it's all still all mixed up into one and they're yep. not separating it yeah so they forced the they, they didn't they didn't really go through bankruptcy processes that cleanse the system of bad assets and i think there's a lot of lessons we've done a lot of similar things right in, in our economy uh so it's not like we've never done that but for the yeah, most part, you know, we, we're more and more apt to allow companies to fail, obviously with Lehman. And while that caused contagion and all that, there's some positives that kind of cleanse the system of that bad debt. But you're correct. Japan pretty much never did that. They just allowed those good entities to swallow up the bad entities or force them to. And, anyway. and since then, I heard that the Japanese government, or maybe through the Bank of Japan, they will actually won't let their stock market fall. I mean, they will literally buy individual securities in Japan stocks, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, which I think the closest I heard that we that that our government went and did something similar would be maybe buying an ETF of bonds. Yeah, we bought corporate bonds during the COVID right. crisis. Yep. So what right. you can see is that Japan, because their demographic situation. And their their indebtedness in the late late eighties into the early nineties, they've been forced down the path of bad decisions faster, 
uh, you know, our economy is a lot more diverse, but we have some similar issues and we do some similar stupid things uh, from a government level. Um, but, you know, it's all about magnitude, right? And Japan has kind of gone down this road of uh, bad decisions that's taken them a long time to uh, work through it. Now, they've actually gotten their, their economy to de the debt of their uh, domestic economy and their citizens to a reasonable level. Most of the debt is on the government level. That's why their debt to GP ratio is somewhere like over 200%. Um, but, you know, this, this has taken 30 years for them to wean their corporate and, and uh, consumer market off of the amount of debt that they had built up in the late, 90, late 80s. Uh, can I just add one or two comments about uh, Korea? Sure. So, yeah, so I think Korea now actually has become what I think maybe, maybe what America feared about what they thought Japan would turn into in the, in the 80s. I, I mean, Korea, the economy came up really from nothing, from no manufacturing base at all before the Korean War, and now their demographics is much younger. They, they produce obviously electronics and 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 uh and consumer goods you if you go into any store uh and uh, Samsung and phones and cars with Kia and Genesis and uh Hyundai mm -hmm. i think they've become really what we thought Japan might become or feared in America what do you think yeah i think that's that's certainly true and japan still has a good economy uh compared to a lot it's still one of the largest economies in the world i think it's uh, what fifth or sixth so i, I don't want to say japan has crashed and burned or anything it's just kind of uh, a lot of its strengths they, they built upon and other parts just kind of slowly died uh especially manufacturing right for example they didn't they don't have the people to manufacture in japan so what have they done they've set up factories in tennessee and other parts of the u.s that's why a lot of honda and toyotas are actually built here in the u.s it's still with the intellectual capital and design and uh manufacturing high level engineering expertise from japan but the actual workers are here in the u.s because they don't have the workers in japan whereas like you said south korea they have much better demographics also similar innovation uh, culture high ed high education uh when it comes to pumping out engineers uh and citizens that are ready to help the workforce and, and to help uh, innovate and you're you're correct south korea has done a very good job of that because of that so uh there, there's definitely some parallels there and and South Korea continues to pivot in, in a much better direction, in a more sustainable direction. It just shows you the perils of building up too much debt uh, in an overall economy. Thanks for the call, Gene. Great, uh, great points. Now, <clears throat> Steve and I have been telling you for a while that now we're in a new market environment, new cycles, and serious investors need to understand these trends of demographics and, and, and inflation and interest rates and adjust their thinking to fit the times. So if you need help figuring out whether your portfolio strategy is aligned with the underlying economic environment, the underlying secular trends that are both helping parts of the market and hurting parts of the market, well, you can reach out to myself or Steve Peasley at our company, KPP Financial, where we practice parallel investing, which means you invest right alongside our clients and you can do this for free. It's our free portfolio review assessment. And we do that from our Irvine, California office. 
and we can do that for 10 minutes, an hour, whatever it takes to help you understand where you're at and maybe where you should be going. No obligation. We'd love to connect with you. And the sooner we can connect, the sooner we can help you get your portfolio optimized. Now, this is Invest Talk, And with more than 35, sorry, 53.5 million downloads, thanks to you. Next up, more market analysis, more answers to your questions. So hang on. In today's world, a variety of factors are affecting the stock markets. Serious investors know building a secure financial future requires hard work and determination. That's why now, more than ever, when it comes to the planning, execution, and maintenance of your portfolio, you need InvestTalk. InvestTalk is a free download, 24-7, rain or shine. The InvestTalk listener line is open and waiting for your questions. 888-99-CHART. Hey, Steve, Justin, this is Tyler from Ohio. I just had a question about one stock, T-Row Price, ticker symbol T-R-O-W. I just wanted to get you guys' opinion on it, and um, do you think this is a good time to get in, or should I wait a little while? Thanks, guys. Let me know. All right, looking at T-Row Price Group, and this is one of the largest mutual fund providers out there, and they provide investment advisory services to individuals and institutional investors worldwide. So some money management uh, products, 50, sorry, 52% of their fees come from equity funds, 32% balanced, 13% fixed income. So this is going to really be a levered bet on equity prices. That's what you're betting here. And so if you think equity is going to go up, this is going to do well. They have very little debt on their balance sheet, trading at reasonable multiples, price to free cash flow at about 16 times, trades at a 4.3% dividend yield, which uh, is solid and, and certainly sustainable. Uh, the longer term trends are, are just issues with uh, more indexing, um, but this has started to do fairly well, though underperforming the market since the bottom in October. So I'd worry a bit about that. Uh, right now, we think Tyrell price is modestly overvalued, uh, but not by a whole lot. So good company, good profitability, but really a leveraged bet on equity prices. Now we're heading into our final segment. So if you're going to call, you want to do that now at 888-99-CHART. Each day, InvestTalk listeners submit their finance and investment questions via phone or email. Would you like your question to be put near the top of the list? Just take a minute or two to leave a review and rating for InvestTalk at iTunes. And be sure to include a brief question with your iTunes review comments. Great show. Love it and appreciate all that you do for us. I'm trying to find out if there's any truth to something that I've heard, and um, I'll try to explain it as an example. If I had 10 shares of Apple for a year, and in a year and a half, I add another share, and let's say now I have 11 shares, are the 10 original shares still long-term gains? I had also heard that once you add to your position, that timing starts over. So just interested in understanding how that works. Appreciate it. And thanks again. Very simple. It's called share lots. No, if you buy more shares of a position, it doesn't reset your timing of those original shares you purchased. So you can buy one share every week forever, but those original 10 shares that you bought are still long-term because you bought them on that particular date over a year ago. 
So no, it does not reset your uh, your timing of any other shares that you own. There's different share lots. Now, uh, if you want to sell a position and you want to specify uh, share lots, there's some settings typically within your brokerage account that you can you can change it to first in, first out, or last in, first out. Uh, there's some different rules that can be set depending on your broker. Uh, so check with that. And if you want to be sure, maybe call up your broker and say, hey, I just want to sell these lots uh, so that I make sure that they are long-term or they I'm getting rid of the short-term or whatever, uh, whatever your strategy is. So no, it does not reset if you buy more shares. Now, lastly, let's talk about store-bought brands. And early in the pandemic, there was a, a shift to bigger brands, more trusted brands. And that was part of it. Like companies that people trusted for cleanliness, etc. But it was also because there were supply chain disruptions for a lot of those store-bought brands, private label manufacturers. Remember, if you buy the CVS brand of Tylenol, that's not being produced by CVS. There are private label manufacturers that they do contract manufacturing for. They slap a CVS label on it and they sell it. And you, you could say, well, it's the same active ingredient and it's just as good as the Tylen actual Tylenol brand. And so I'm just going to buy the store-bought brand. And a lot of people do that, especially in times when there is inflation or their budgets are crimped and they start to trade down. During the pandemic, their ability to train down wasn't really there because, like I said, there were supply chain issues with those smaller brands that tend to be less flexible. They, they, they have a smaller number of sources for their products. Oftentimes, the Procter & Gamble's of the world is not just one source of uh, that product. There are multiple factories around the world producing that product, and they can kind of pull from different, uh, different sources. Now, Households were also flush with a lot of cash. They low unemployment, a lot of stimmy checks, and they felt freer to spend up and buy Tylenol versus the CVS brand. But those trends are starting to reverse because of tighter budgets, higher inflation, and the supply chains are healing. So a lot of them are getting back on the shelves. Now, private label brands had an 18.7% share of center aisle groceries by unit sales in the 52 weeks through May 27th. That's up from 17.9 in the same period a year ago. Household care items like paper towels and cleansers, that's up to 32.6 from 31.9% share a year ago. So it's not a big change, but it's starting to flip back. And this has crimped the ability for those bigger names, the Procter & Gamble's of the world, to push through price increases. And this is what I talk about in inflationary environments. And that's why historically, actually consumer staple products don't tend to do very well in an inflationary environment for a couple of reasons. One is this, right? Budgets for the average consumer get constrained and they tend to trade down. And then also the input costs go up, right? So they're using maybe better printed uh, material for their labels. Uh, maybe the filler is a bit different and a bit, bit, bit higher class. And so that goes up. The shipping costs go up. And so their ability to keep their margins becomes constrained. And so this is a good kind of microcosm 
of what typically happens in an inflationary environment. Now, I'm Justin Klein. This completes another Invest Talk program. Steve Peasley and I thank you for listening. And we encourage you to tell your friends and family about a free podcast downloads, which you can find anytime at iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. And be sure to follow Invest Talk on social media as well. Independent thinking, shared success. This is Invest Talk. Good night. Invest Talk is a trademark of KPP Financial. Because of the nature of the interactive dialogue inherent in the format of this program, it's important for the listener to understand that not all comments made will apply to them. Specifically, nothing said shall be taken to be investment advice, or shall statements on this program be considered an offer to buy or sell security. Because such advice is rendered solely on an individual basis and at times will require that the investor review a prospectus before investing. Invest Talk is a copyrighted program of Klein, Pavlis, and Peasley Financial, a registered investment advisor firm which retains all rights. For more information regarding KPP's investment advisors, call 1-800-557-5461. Steve Peasley is president and Justin Klein is chief executive officer of Klein, Pavlis, and Peasley Financial. Thank you for listening and your comments and questions are welcome on our 24-hour listener line at 888-99-CHART.